BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zikazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Videos moderated by real people who review content before it's posted to the feed. I love the dance challenges. I love that it's Kids Safe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids. <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. I have not done this before. I have two separate commentaries for you today because a series of small, underpublicized news stories is giving me the creeps. But I also have a lot to say about my ex, Kirsten Cinema. speaking of giving me the creeps, pretending to become an independent. Those underpublicized news stories first. It seems to have started with the Russians. Monday, October 10th. They bombed 16 different Ukrainian cities that day. Sadly, nothing unusual about that, except for the targets. Power plants, water heating facilities, electrical grids. It was repeated in Kyiv on October 22nd, repeated across Ukraine as recently as December 1st. Enough damage just to power plants to plunge a nation the size of Texas into darkness and cold indefinitely. Then came December 3rd. Somebody fired shots into the Duke Energy substations in Carthage and West End, North Carolina. Not terrorist assaults, not commando raids, not cyber attacks, not break-ins, just ordinary gunfire. And within minutes, virtually all of Moore County, North Carolina, was without electricity and would be for four full days. And it was only that brief because of round-the-clock efforts to put the county's power grid back together again. The same day the lights came back on in North Carolina, 3,000 German cops and special forces troops conducted 150 separate raids in 11 different German states and rolled up a plot to overthrow the German government and at the home of the would-be dictator of a new German Reich, 
They found a cache of Iridium satellite phones that cost $21,000 apiece that were there so members of the plot could communicate with each other after they sabotaged as much of the German national power grid as they could. German coup, destroy the power grid. North Carolina terrorism, destroy the power grid. Russian attack on Ukraine, destroy the power grid. Following me yet? I don't want to make more of this than it deserves, and I genuinely hope I'm being paranoid about this, but I'm getting that same skin-crawling feeling that I had as we began to piece together what we didn't piece together before 9-11, about frequent flyers seeing the same passengers acting bizarrely on the same routes out of Logan and Newark and Dulles, but nobody cross-referencing what they saw, which were dry runs, or the hijackers learning how to fly but not bothering with landings or takeoffs, or the two terrorists who flew the plane into the Pentagon renting rooms from an FBI informant who never suspected them. But of course, this is premature and wild and irresponsible of me because it's just one attack on two substations in North Carolina, and that may still turn out to have been a crazy scheme to prevent a drag show from these imbeciles incited by the manipulative record rhetoric now being fueled by the likes of Elon Musk. It is not as if there have been other attacks on power stations, not in America. Moore County is the 13th attack on a power station in America since September. Duke Energy, Bay Ridge substation, Florida, September 10th, intruder. Duke Energy, Bay Ridge substation, Florida, September 13th, intruder. Duke Energy, Orange Blossom substation, Florida, September 18th, intruder. Duke Energy, Zephyr Hills substation, Florida, September 21st, intruder. Duke Energy, Zephyr Hills North substation, Florida, September 21st, forced entry, nine-minute outage. Duke Energy East Clearwater Substation, Florida, September 22nd, forced entry. Manually locked the substation, taking it offline, two-minute outage. Cowlitz County Public Utility, Woodland, Washington, mid-November, two substations attacked. Puget Sound Energy, Washington State, late November, two substations attacked. Portland General Electric, Clackamas, Oregon, late November. Bonneville Power Administration, Clackamas County, Oregon, November 24th. Fence cut, equipment damaged. The Bonneville Power Administration attack, number 12 on your list here, not counting North Carolina, is especially noteworthy because the Bonneville Power Administration runs a key part of the power transmission system from the federal hydroelectrical dams that goes to the entire Northwest. Again, Maybe, maybe, maybe this isn't some sort of nationwide testing of the defenses at substations in the Northwest, in the Southeast, in Florida. Maybe it all isn't in furtherance of some plot or plots to shut off the power to enable what? A fascist coup? Something on Trump's behalf? Support for the Oath Keepers or the Proud Boys? An excuse for martial law? Something from the crazy parts of the left? Your guess is as good as mine. Maybe somebody just wants to see the inside of power substations. Maybe somebody has a grudge against power companies, ludicrous as that sounds. For 16 years, New York City was terrorized by a man identified as the Mad Bomber. His real name was George Metesky. He hid 
33 bombs in Grand Central, in Radio City, the Public Library, 30 Rock, the subway. George Metesky turned out to be a former Con Edison employee who was injured in an accident there in 1931. The bombs, he believed, were his revenge. So it could be that. But there comes a point at which the motive is not the primary concern. Just consider the confusion, the fear, and the insecurity in Moore County, North Carolina, population 100,000. Just remember the confusion, the fear, the insecurity in the Northeast blackout from 2003. Just consider a scenario where your lights don't work, your heat doesn't work, your air conditioning doesn't work, your refrigerator doesn't work, your phone doesn't work, your internet doesn't work, and somebody has done this deliberately because the defenses around the soft targets of our electrical grid are a bunch of chain link fences. You don't even have to cut through them. As Moore County showed, you can just shoot through them. The Wall Street Journal got hold of a study by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. There are more than 55,000 transmission substations in this country. Most of them are privately owned, so forget some easy security fix. 100 of the 55,000 are considered vital, but just nine of them are so critical that attacks on just those, just those nine, could plunge the nation into darkness, according to this study. Nine. As opposed to the 13 that have been attacked since September. Oh, by the way, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission warning that the Wall Street Journal got a hold of, it's from March. March of 2014. And speaking of being in the dark, there is Kirsten Cinema. The hand-wringing, mystified confusion in Washington is, in and of itself, mystifying to me. Her move to rebrand herself Friday is independent, is not mysterious, nor is it enigmatic. It is obviously not sincere. It is, in fact, her last option. She is Sheriff Bart in blazing saddles. Let me out of here or the cinema gets it. She is the lamest lame duck ever to hold a Senate or House seat. Liz Cheney's numbers were better. Kirsten's only remaining play is to threaten, without saying she is threatening, that she will run as an independent in 2024 for the seat she currently holds. Mark Kelly just beat Blake. Why, yes, I was hypnotized at the county fair and never snapped out of it. Why do you ask, Masters? by 126,000 votes out of 2.5 million votes cast. Kirsten Cinema running as a third-party candidate, getting literally 6% of the vote in the 2024 Arizona Senate election, could throw it to the Republican. She is underwater in terms of the polls. Her unfavorables exceed her favorables by 13 points among college-educated voters. That is her best net score. She's minus 14 among men over 50, minus 15 among whites over 50, minus 16 among all men and among all voters over 50. Kirsten is minus 17 among women and all likely voters. She's minus 18 among Republicans. She's minus 20 among Democrats. She's minus 22 among Hispanics. It's amazing. It's like they all dated her. This is why Friday she declared herself a, quote, independent. 
She might not even bother to run for renomination by the Democrats in 2024. She just has to convince Democratic leadership in Arizona and Washington that she can get on the ballot through a third party. And then she hopes they will fold to her unspoken blackmail and keep other Democrats from challenging her. I mean, keep all the other Democrats in the world from challenging her for that Senate nomination. If they do that and she can maintain her absolute conviction that she is a super genius while the rest of us are idiots, and by us I mean all of humanity, I truly believe that she believes she can con Arizona into re-electing her. Even if they cleared the field for her, it will not work, but it does allow for her to Tulsi Gabbard this thing, identify as a Democrat for a while, vote as a Republican, get a job at Fox News as the in-house pet alleged liberal. And if it's none of those, she may actually be suffering under delusion, one of those you-should-get-a-CT-scan delusions, that she can run for president as some sort of centrist in 2024. Personally, given the choice between having to work for Cinema for President 24 and Kanye for President 24, I think I'd flee the country. My question is, why did she choose this path? We dated briefly in 2010 and 2011. It was not a big deal. It was always friendly. There was no breakup. We went to Book of Mormon twice. She was clear she didn't have relationships, so there was no expectation from either of us. No scenes, no anger. We talked a lot before and after. I haven't seen her in 11 years, but we stayed in touch right through her election to the Senate, and then she disappeared. And I couldn't calculate the exact percentage, but she was thoroughly and in all respects phenomenally more liberal than I am. Minus 20 among Democrats. Minus 20 among all voters without four years of college. Do you know how difficult it is to put up both of those numbers together? It's like being attacked for an hour by me and then being attacked for an hour by Tucker Carlson. The popular theory is that when exposed to the money available to her from the corporations, especially the hedge funds, her liberality, her bond to people like herself raised on the brink of financial disaster melted away that she suddenly discovered that being a warrior for the underprivileged, being a member of and the champion for half a dozen minority groups was great, but that money was better. The communications director on her 2018 Senate campaign spared nothing Friday, quote, cinema is showing us who she's been all along out for herself. One of her rivals in her 2012 race for Congress, her one-time friend David Shapira, says she has always been like this. They made a joint public promise to run a clean campaign in 2012, and she promptly lied and put out ads in which she said he had supported McCain over Obama, he had supported Obama over McCain, and that he favored private school vouchers. He was, in fact, wildly against private school vouchers. Shapira writes, quote, She later apologized and told me she had to do it or she would have lost, as if that made it okay. Unquote. I can see that. Even 12 years ago, she was messianic, but she's also messy. If I and my experiences are any indicator, 
Kirsten Cinema is remarkably free with the, let's call them atypical details of her personal life. And as I've seen her turn into a red dog Democrat these last four years, at best a red dog Democrat, I find myself thinking and thinking each time as if it has just occurred to me for the first time, I wonder if somebody is blackmailing her. Now, I do not underrate what money can do. I have seen better people in every industry in this country, better people than Kirsten Cinema corrupted by money. But what if it's both? I mean, maybe it's neither. Maybe she's just a schmuck. But her political instincts were once so solid and practical that to have collapsed in this way makes her the John Edwards of her time. Still ahead, Trump confesses he deliberately left the former Marine Paul Whelan in a Russian jail, even though he was offered a straight-up prisoner swap for him. That is some confession, even for Trump. Marjorie Trader Green boasts the next time they try a coup, they will bring more guns. QAnon is in full flower. Elon Musk threatens Anthony Fauci. When is the Senate hearing into how he's jeopardized the lives of former Twitter employees, to say nothing of Dr. Fauci, by promulgating Pizzagate? Chuck Todd finally makes it into worse persons. And it was one of the great privileges of my career, covering the miracle on ice, the hockey game against the Soviets at the 1980 Olympics in Lake Placid. Of course, a week before that, I found myself stranded atop a mountain in Lake Placid, about to be fired because the only other radio reporter up there would not help me out. Things I promise not to tell coming up. That's next. This is Countdown. Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Allison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. <laughs> Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on the Deadline. Thank you again, Allison. Thank you. Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zigazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Zigazoo is moderated by real live people who review content before it's posted on the feed. Oh, <laughs> I especially love the dance challenges. 
so much fun. Oh, and there's no comments or messaging, so you don't get any of that negativity that's all over other social networks. All my friends love it. I love that it's Kids Safe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Uh, that's great, but I wouldn't be doing Zigazoo if it wasn't fun. She would not be doing it if I didn't think her data was safe. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids! <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. Still ahead, did we just finally make inroads towards making nuclear fusion a practical source of energy? Is it going to be announced tomorrow? And in the same speech, did Marjorie Taylor Greene actually endorse both another January 6th and, quote, dildos and butt plugs, unquote. First, in each edition of Countdown, we feature a dog in need. You can help. Every dog has its day. Imagine you're Benji. He is a puppy with a big smile and big energy and a love for fetch and for playing ball. Yet his humans kept him in a crate for 10 hours a day because they thought he had too much energy. Right after his second birthday, they took him to the New York Kill Shelter to die there. He needs training and socialization, and he needs our pledges to help defray the costs a rescue will incur by saving him from that kill list tomorrow. You can find Benji on my Twitter feeds. Please retweet him and pledge if you can. I thank you, and Benji thanks you. Postscripts to the news, and there's a lot of it. Some headlines, some updates, some snarks, some predictions. Dateline Mar-a-Lago, quite a confession last night from Trump, quoting his social media post, I turned down a deal with Russia for a one-on-one swap of the so-called merchant of death for Paul Whelan, end quote. Trump rather remarkably admitting he let the former Marine rot in a Russian prison for two years because the trade terms were more important to him than the American citizen in question. Quote, I wouldn't have made the deal for 100 people in exchange for someone that has killed untold numbers of people with his arms deals. Trump neglects to note that Victor Boot, the so-called merchant of death, his sentence ends in six years and he will be released anyway. Quote, I would have gotten Paul out, however, just as I did with a record number of other hostages unquote, even though, of course, he didn't get Paul Whelan out. Last quote, the deal for Griner is crazy and bad. The taking wouldn't have ever happened during my administration, but if it did, I would have gotten her out fast, unquote, even though he didn't get Paul Whelan out at all. Dateline, the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California. The Financial Times reports that the, quote, major scientific breakthrough to be announced tomorrow by the Department of Energy is nothing less than a successful experiment in harnessing nuclear fusion. Quoting, a process called inertial confinement fusion that involves bombarding a tiny pellet of hydrogen plasma with the world's biggest laser had achieved net energy gain in a fusion experiment in the past two weeks. If this is true, it could change everything from the future of energy production to the chance we still have to save this planet from climate change. The real test as to whether or not nuclear fusion 
as opposed to nuclear fission, i.e. Dr. Strangelove, is how quickly the fossil fuel industry will start rumors that nuclear fusion kills birds and spreads COVID. Dateline San Francisco, speaking of which, Q Elon is in full flower. No word yet whether Dr. Anthony Fauci will sue Elon Musk after Musk last night stated as if fact that Fauci, quote, lied to Congress, unquote, and funded research that, quote, killed millions of people. Earlier, Musk had tweeted that his pronouns were, quote, prosecute slash Fauci. What is needed now is Senate hearings into Elon Musk and who or what might be behind his transformation of Twitter into one long Pizzagate tweet. For context, on March 6, 2020, Musk tweeted, quote, the coronavirus is dumb. And on March 19, 2020, Musk tweeted, probably close to zero cases in U.S. too by end of April. Also looking idiotic today, the New York Times, which on Saturday reported that it was difficult to tell what Musk's politics really were. And based on how quickly that bit of sophistry was disproved, the Times should probably fold today. Thank you, Nancy Faust. And Dateline New York, and speaking of Mickey Mouse, Marjorie Trader Green addressed a Young Republicans dinner or cell meeting or whatever Saturday and endorsed the January 6th coup attempt and then explained how the mob sent by Trump could have successfully prevented the certification of President Biden's election and overthrown the government and installed Trump as dictator. Then January 6th happens, and next thing you know, I organized the whole thing along with Steve Bannon here. And I want to tell you something, if Steve Bannon and I had organized that, we would have won. Cro-Magnon woman speaks. The last line there hints at where Taylor Green went next, repeating the lie that there were no guns at the Capitol or on the Capitol grounds during the coup attempt. See, that's the whole joke, isn't it? They say that whole thing was planned, and I'm like, are you kidding me? A bunch of conservative Second Amendment supporters went in the Capitol without guns, and they think that we organized that? I don't think so. You'll notice no laughs or applause there, just shock, I guess, because Green inadvertently proved that it was the Second Amendment people who did, in fact, carry out the attempted coup on January 6th. There were at least seven arrests for gun possession at the Capitol that day. Mark Mazza is going to jail for five years for having brought two handguns handguns rather in. Lonnie Kaufman got four years for one gun. Guy Reffitt convicted of having one on the grounds. And, of course, the Oath Keepers had a stash of literally dozens of long guns waiting at a Virginia hotel. On the other hand, Green says that the so-called Twitter files are, quote, evidence of a coup, a comment that is in itself evidence of a moron. And in her New York speech, she complained about transgenderism and how, quote, you can pick up a butt plug or a dildo at Target nowadays, unquote. And you have to admit that at least it's nice She has finally turned to talking about her areas of expertise.
This is Sports Center. Wait, check that. Not anymore. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. Nuclear fusion and butt plugs in the same podcast in sports. After the shocking death of America's top soccer journalist Grant Wall on Friday, another journalist has died at the World Cup. Qatari photographer Khalid al-Mislam collapsed yesterday and died at the age of 48. There is as yet nothing further on what caused it and nothing further on Grant Wall's death, though his brother Eric tells the Kansas City Star, quote, there's enough that I know in my conversations with Grant to make me legitimately suspicious, if nothing else. That's why we want transparency. Those remarks were made on Sunday. Eric Wall says he has been assured his brother's autopsy will be conducted in the U.S. In happier sports news, Brittany Griner is still being assessed at Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio, but her agent's telling ESPN that she picked up a basketball yesterday for the first time in 10 months, and she started her light workout with... A dunk. Basketball is mourning a great loss, too. Paul Silas has died, another product of McClyman's High School in Oakland, a sports factory for generations, a member of the NBA champion Celtics of 1974 and 76, and the Seattle Sonics of 1979. 16 years as an NBA player and 11 as a head coach. And a big anniversary in baseball over the weekend. 51 years ago Saturday, the New York Mets gave up on a promising pitcher, easily the hardest thrower in the game, but one whose inconsistency had bedeviled the Mets for six seasons. They sent Nolan Ryan to the California Angels with three prospects for shortstop Jim Fergosi, whom they envisioned as the man who would end their 10-year search for a star third baseman. It was not a good trade. It did not work out, but it has been enshrined as one of the worst trades in sports history, and this is terrifically unfair to everybody involved. In the first half of the season before the deal, in 1971, Nolan Ryan struck out 100 men in his first 104 innings that year. His earned run average at midseason was 2.24, and his whip was 1.29. In the second half of the same year, he pitched only 48 innings, walked 53 men, struck out just 37. His ERA went up five and a half runs to 7.74, and his whip went up an entire base runner to 2.22. And that was the second straight year that Ryan, despite a light workload, had imploded at midseason. There were also all sorts of rumors that Nolan Ryan did not want to play in New York anymore, that his family hated the place. The Mets might have had the best pitching coach in baseball. He had nurtured and refined the likes of Tom Seaver and Jerry Kuzman and others, and he could never get through to Nolan Ryan. And as to the players the Mets got... Jim Fergosi was only four years and ten months older than Nolan Ryan. So much for the cliche that they traded Nolan Ryan for some old guy. Fergosi had had an off year in 1971. But in the eight seasons ending in 1970, Jim Fergosi had gotten votes each year in every election for the most valuable player in the American League. Modern calculations show that twice, including in 1970, Fergosi had the second highest wins above replacement total in the entire American League. He had made six all-star teams in seven years. Four winters earlier, future Hall of Fame Angels beat writer Ross Newhan reported that the Giants so coveted Jim Fergosi that they offered to give the Angels future Hall of Fame pitcher Juan Marichal, slugger Jim Ray Hart, and infielder Tito Fuentes just for Fergosi, and the Angels turned them down. 
At one point, the Angels contemplated asking Jim Fregosi to become player manager of the team, and they actually kind of did that. In 1978, when he was finishing up as an active player for Pittsburgh, the Angels traded for him and made him their manager, and he then led them and Nolan Ryan, his pitcher, to the American League Championship Series the next year. Was it a good trade? No, it was not a good trade. But very few people would have told you that 51 years ago today. Ultimately, the Mets needed to trade Nolan Ryan. They could not have forecast that in his first spring training in New York, Jim Fregosi would hurt his thumb and never be able to hit with power again. Fregosi was a great player, and nobody, nobody knew that he had hit the end of the road before that trade was made. He should be remembered for more than just that trade, and it should probably also be remembered that Nolan Ryan pitched for 22 years after the trade, and not once did his team win a single postseason series. Fergosi, well, he managed the Philadelphia Phillies into the 1993 World Series. Ahead, you know that phrase, I have been to the top of the mountain? Well, I have. And I can tell you the view is not always that good. For it was at the top of the mountain that I discovered I didn't have all the equipment I needed to do my job, and the only other radio reporter on top of the mountain refused to help me. Things I promised not to tell about the 1980 Olympics. Next. First, the daily roundup of the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. Bronze. Chuck Todd who at this rate will be the 12th and final moderator of NBC's Meet the Press, discussing the possibility of criminal referrals by the January 6th committee with ex-prosecutor Preet Bharara. Chuck asked, but doesn't it add negatively to the political stew? Just when you thought Chuck had run out of euphemisms for, I have to say something to let the Republicans off some hook somewhere or they'll get me fired tomorrow morning. I've known Chuck Todd 18 years now. And he will never understand that he will never understand that the political stew is merely the package that America comes in. It is not the contents. The runner-up, Kyle Rittenhouse. Kyle Rittenhouse has tweeted, quote, People need to start being held accountable. Unquote. Wow. I don't know, Sonny. People need to start being held accountable? You better hope not. But our winner, Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Politico, in its daily roundup of award season for ugly people, listed some of those, quote, spotted at the annual Christmas party of the czar and czarina of CPAC, Matt and Mercedes Schlepp. I'm sorry, Schlapp. Schlepp actually sounds better, doesn't it? Matt and Mercedes Schlepp. Matt and Mercedes Schlapp. Quote, Matt Gates, Greta Van Susteren, Eric Prince, that's the mercenary Eric Prince, Eric Prince, Sebastian Gorka, Sean, I don't know what day it is, Spicer, and Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Before you ask, what on earth is a Supreme Court justice doing at a party for the scummiest fascists in town? You already know the answer to that question. What is he doing at that party? Well, he's serving canapes. Justice Brett Would you like a cocktail napkin with that, Ms. Van Susteren? Kavanaugh, today's worst person! Oh, have this drink, too. In the world!
Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Before I found Zigazoo, I believed all social media was inappropriate for kids, but I feel great about my kids being on Zigazoo. Videos are moderated by actual people before being added to the feed. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about mean comments on your kids' videos. And you need parental consent before joining Zigazoo. Bottom line, it's a space that prioritizes data safety for kids. Oh, but don't take my word for it. Zigazoo is KidSafe COPPA certified. So weigh everything Zigazoo has to offer. Maybe you'll zigzag too. Zigazoo, a social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. To the number one story on the countdown and my favorite topic, me and things I promised not to tell. And I swear I saw a snowflake or two late Saturday night here, the first of the year. And that makes it 42 consecutive winters that that first snow has triggered me in exactly the same way, sending me back in my mind to the 1980 Winter Olympics in Lake Placid, New York. The alarm goes off. It is pitch black in my room at the Swiss Acres Motel. It is Valentine's Day, and I am still drunk. Keith knew he was in trouble. But I was also 21 years old, and in fact, my 21st birthday had only been 18 days earlier, so somehow I survived. Showered, dressed, packed, and I mean I packed two cassette tape recorders, four sets of batteries, an audio processing machine that weighed like 14 pounds, the nine-volt batteries it took, I think it was a dozen of them, a telephone, a backup telephone, 12 assorted patch cords, two loose-leaf notebooks, about eight pens, two microphones, two extra pair of socks, then I got dressed, two full sets of thermal underwear, shirts, sweaters, snow pants, snowshoes, because it was 11 degrees below zero that morning. 
I got something quick to eat at the commissary, and I made it out somehow to the line for the bus from the Lake Placid Olympic Center to the Lake Placid Transportation Center to Lake Placid's own White Face Mountain, then onto the snow track, the open-penned mountain tractor that went up the side of White Face Mountain and took me to the finish line of the 1980 Olympic men's downhill ski final. Still drunk. That is how a reporter covered the Olympics nearly 43 years ago. You drank. You woke up, you went, you stood near the finish line, and when the skiers completed their runs, you hiked or wobbled over to them, and you took out your microphone or your pen and you interviewed them like two minutes after they had finished hurtling towards you down the hill. You could see almost nothing of the race from there. There were no TV monitors. Basically, your only clue was the sound of the crowd that would give you about 30 seconds worth of warning that the skier was coming over the near horizon and you should be prepared to flee just in case he or she wiped out. Also, you were on top of a mountain at the dead point of winter. And whereas it might have been a balmy 11 degrees below zero in the comfort of the Swiss Acres Motel, with the wind chill at the base of the mountain, it was 48 below zero. And there had already been four inches of new snow since the sun came up. Which is where the still drunk part came in handy. My bosses at my first job, the thousand station radio network called United Press International Audio, had decided the night before to teach me how to drink while on assignment. My bosses were the bureau manager for that part of UPI, the late Stan Sabic, who had hired me, and Sam Rosen, the sports director of the network, who not only somehow survived being my first boss, but today, just 43 years later, is still working as the television voice of the New York Rangers hockey team and is in the Hockey Hall of Fame. So I guess my reputation as a tough employee is wildly overrated, or at least Sam thinks so. Sam and Stan kept me drinking at the motel until 2 a.m., knowing full well that I had to get on the 6 a.m. bus to go cover the men's downhill because it was the two of them who had assigned me to go cover the men's downhill. And bluntly, I was surprisingly pleased with myself that freezing morning because I had indeed learned how to drink while on assignment. I had somehow found the phone jack for the UPI phone buried under all the new snow, which, of course, was buried under all the old snow, attached the phone to it, gotten a dial tone, called the office, checked the alligator clips with which I would feed the tape, and all was well. Until... I went to put a cassette tape into the cassette recorder. I didn't have one. Fat lot of good two cassette tape machines gonna do you without a cassette to stick in one of them. I looked forlornly around the base of Whiteface Mountain. 1,200 feet above sea level as we were, there was a surprisingly nice chalet and a decent restaurant, but there were no radio shacks or other electronic stores. There was, however, one other radio guy, Jack Briggs, from the Associated Press Radio Network, the nominal arch-rival to our own UPI audio. I knew Jack a little. He was a nice guy. I went and explained my plight, making sure to blame my bosses for my predicament. Oh, man, he said, his breath turning into first steam and then ice cubes. I'm so sorry, but I, I, I can't give you a cassette. 
I'm sorry, you're UPI and I'm AP. <laughs> oh, how I laughed. That was a great line to say to a rookie reporter still drunk, thanks to the initiation rituals of his own bosses, the possessor of one great buzz but zero audio cassettes. Jack Briggs could tell I thought he was kidding. That's when he said, I- I- I'm not kidding. Look, look, if my boss Shelby Whitfield ever found out, he'd fire me. I suddenly wasn't drunk anymore. Not at all. My my boss will will fire me. Briggs was adamant. I, I can't run the risk of Shelby finding out. I have to confess, I shouted. How in the hell is he going to find out, Jack? I think subconsciously I was hoping to create an avalanche, which would have been a better solution than the one I was faced with. I said to him, there's you and there's me. And we're on top of a goddamn mountain, and Shelby Whitfield, your boss, is in Washington, D.C., and he's a drunk, and he's probably more drunk than I am, and he'd probably thank you for helping me to drink more. Briggs would not budge. I told him I would pay him. I told him I would give him the cassette back after I fed my boss the interviews over the phone so there'd be no evidence, and he wouldn't even have to do any interviews. No good. I'm sorry, and I know you're going to tell this story about me for a while. As he walked away from me, I shouted after him, FOREVER! Turned out there was no Radio Shack and no camaraderie, but there was a West Coast newspaper reporter atop the mountain who heard some of this conversation. (laughs) I guess I yelled a little loudly at Mr. Briggs. Some guy standing next to a St. Bernard told me to quiet down. He mentioned something else about the avalanches, or maybe I dreamed that part. I don't know. Anyway, the West Coast newspaper guy said he had a micro cassette machine, and he would loan it to me, and I could give it back to him at the media center that day or the next one. But I had to do him a favor because there was this really cute reporter in our UPI bureau, and he really wanted to be introduced to her. And I said, I can promise you nothing but a handshake, and he understood, and that's how I did not get fired. But of course, a story like this has punchlines, and this one has two of them. The first is, two years and a couple of months later, Shelby Whitfield asked me to lunch. He had left the Associated Press to run the sports department at the ABC radio network, back when that was not only a thing, but a big thing. We went to a terrific New York City Chinese restaurant near ABC called Shun Li. And Shelby Whitfield interviewed me for a job when that kind of job paid 80000 a year in my very nice studio apartment in a very nice part of town cost less than $500 a month. Later, in an interesting twist, I found out the jobs didn't exist. I was mentioning the interview in a press box somewhere, I think Madison Square Garden, and there was another kid reporter named Howie Rose. And Howie is still working. He does the New York Mets games on the radio. And Howie said, wait, they, uh, they interviewed me for that job last year. It's just an excuse for that damn Whitfield to go drink his lunch on ABC's tab. Anyway, before we started the interview for the job I did not know did not exist at ABC, I told Shelby Whitfield the white-faced mountain, can I borrow a cassette, Jack Briggs story, and Shelby's exact reply was, how in the hell was I going to find out? There was you and there was him and you were on top of a goddamn mountain and I was in Washington. Only he didn't say goddamn. That Briggs, he added, always trying to suck up to me. I got to tell you something. I actually once promised I wouldn't tell you if we ever met this. When the Olympics were over and he came back to the office, he told me what happened. He expected me to be happy or give him a bonus or something. And I called him a little snitch. 
Only Shelby didn't say snitch, just a word that rhymed with it. The other punchline is from 1992. And remember, this happened at the 1980 Olympics. I go to work at ESPN and come in a little early to launch their radio network, a story I've told here before. And there, I find a friend of mine since my radio days who I have not seen in a year or so, and he says, Hey, last month I was at an NBA game in Washington. I ran into Jack Briggs. He heard you were going to ESPN. He asked me if you were still telling that story about the time you got stuck on Whiteface Mountain without a cassette, and he was the only other reporter there, and he wouldn't give you a spare, and I told him you were. And I smiled, and I replied, I hope you remembered to use the word forever. I mean, how is he going to find out? Spy satellites? It's 1980. There are no spy satellites. I've done all the damage I can do here. Thanks for listening. If you're not following or subscribed or whatever to this podcast, please do so and stop somebody on the street and get them to as well. Here are the credits. Most of the music, including our theme from Beethoven's Ninth, was arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel. They are the Countdown musical directors. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray, produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by the group No Horns Allowed. The sports music is the Olbermann theme from ESPN2. It was written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN Inc. Musical comments by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was Richard Lewis. Everything else was pretty much my fault because I left the cassette back in the hotel room, Mr. Briggs. Thank God I'm not bitter. That's Countdown for this, the 706th day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Arrest him now while we still can. There'll be a new edition tomorrow. Until then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zigazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Videos moderated by real people who review content before it's posted to the feed. I love the dance challenges. I love that it's Kids Safe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids. <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great Thank conversation. You. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. <laughs> 